It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson were united in their support of the U.S. Constitution, but didn't agree on issues like states' rights and direct democracy. The founders' constitutional battles and brilliant ideas shaped today's America. Jeff Rosen leads the National Constitution Center. Who were they as people? What were their ideas? And what is their relevance to today? What were the ideals of the framers? And what can they teach us about modern American democracy? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. What were America's founders like? We know James Madison stood five foot four, was epileptic, and graduated from college in two years. George Washington was raised by an older brother and never had children. John Adams was a minister and a lawyer. He was short, overweight, bald, and only had one tooth. In this lighthearted conversation, Jeff Rosen of the National Constitution Center interviews David Rubenstein. Rubenstein co-founded the Carlyle Group and collects historic documents including the Magna Carta and the Emancipation Proclamation. He helps fund American cultural and educational institutions and sits on the board of the National Constitution Center. Here's Rosen. David, let me begin. You've lent so many institutions copies of the Declaration of Independence. You've given the National Constitution Center one and you've spread them across the world. What were the basic ideas that Jefferson was trying to achieve in the Declaration of Independence? Let me answer that, but before I do so, thank you all for coming. I hope this shows Americans' interest in democracy and our founding fathers. And it's tempting to say that they'd be turning over in their grave if they came to see some of the things going on today, but I will resist that temptation to say that. Um, <laughs> the, interestingly, when we had the Constitutional Convention and we had the Second, Second Continental Congress, the people there were all white males. They were all Christian white males. They were all reasonably wealthy white males. So I've often wondered, what would the Declaration of Independence look like if there had been 50% females, or more than 50%, at the Constitutional Convention? What would the Constitution be like today if we had 50% or more women, if we had minorities, if we had people who were Jewish? What would it be like? And I often think about this, who would be the people today that we would want to have to go to a constitutional convention? There were 55 people at our constitutional convention, 55 white Christian males, pretty much upper class. Uh, if we had a constitutional convention today, how many people today who are public leaders would you actually want to have in that constitutional convention? Modest number, maybe. Where are the great leaders today? Well, they may not be in Congress. They may not be at the White House. They may be other places. We don't know where they are. They may be in this audience. Who knows? But just think about this when you leave today. You know, the, we have these documents we're still living with. They were created by a very unrepresentative group of society then and certainly not today, but we still live with them. So they must have had some pretty good insights about the kinds of things that would survive for a while. So let me talk about the Declaration for a moment. The Declaration of Independence, everybody's heard about it. It's a propaganda document. It has no legal effect at all, none, zero. Here's what happened. When we were in the Second Continental Congress, we couldn't reach an agreement with the British Parliament and King George about what we wanted to do, which was to get no taxation without representation removed. We wanted some representation in Parliament. We wanted some of the taxes removed, and so forth. The King George just gave us a stiff hand, and, and uh, the Parliament wouldn't do anything. So John Adams and Richard Henry Lee from Virginia said in the Second Continental Congress, which was meeting, started in September, it started in 1775, went through 1776, they said, let's figure out whether we should break away. The delegates said, well, we don't have the authority to break away. So John Adams and Richard Henry Lee introduced a resolution, more or less, saying, go back to your states, get resolutions and approval to come back and see whether we should vote to be independent. While that was going on, they realized if the delegates came back and they voted to be independent, what should they do? Well, they have to explain why they're gonna be independent. They have to give an explanation. So they decided to have a five-person committee come up with a document that would explain it. The five-person committee was John Adams, who was a leader of the, of the Continental Congress, Thomas Jefferson, who was not really a leader. He was a 33-year-old young delegate who had not been in the first Continental Congress, who was not that well-known. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, obviously well-known, and uh, two other people not as well-known, Robert Livingston and Roger Sherman. The five people met, and John Adams, because he was an irascible person and many people 
didn't really necessarily want to listen to what he would say. He didn't think he should write it. He said, I want somebody that's not from Massachusetts, because Massachusetts is the leader of this effort to break away. Maybe somebody from Virginia would be better. Thomas Jefferson's on this committee. Thomas Jefferson was known to be a good writer. So he said to Thomas Jefferson, why don't you write it? Thomas Jefferson acted like most of us would. He had 18 days to write it, and he waited for the last three days. <laughs> you know, he was busy. He had time, you know, he had other things to do. The truth is, when you're on the Continental Congress, every member of that Continental Congress had about 20 different committees they were on. They were meeting all the time. So Thomas Jefferson, with three days to go, sits down in his unair-conditioned apartment that he rented in Philadelphia with two slaves that he brought up there. And without any books by his side, he wrote out the Declaration of Independence. It had three parts. The preamble, to explain what it was all about. The key, the meat of it was the sins of King George. Here's all the things that King George did. And then third, what we're going to do about it, which is break away. So he did this draft, and he turned it over to the committee, and the committee knew that he was sensitive about his writing, so they didn't edit it too much. Uh, he originally wrote uh, some little bit different things than what ultimately turned out to be the case, but basically they, they blessed it, and they gave it the approval to go forward. So it went forward to the Continental Congress around June 27th, 28th, uh, and ultimately um, it sat there. Then the delegates came back, and they had the authority to vote to be independent. So they had the vote, they had the debate. And the debate was on July the 1 and July 2. At the end of July 2, the delegates voted uh, more or less 12 to 0, 12 states in favor of breaking away and none in favor of staying. New York State was being invaded, so their, parliament, their, their legislature couldn't really meet, so they didn't have the authority then to give the approval. 12 to 0. They say, okay, July the 2nd, we voted to be independent. Now how are we going to explain this? John Adams then wrote a letter his, that night to his wife, Abigail, saying, this will be the most famous day in American history. For the rest of our history, we'll celebrate this day because this is the day we broke away, July the 2nd. Remember that date. Okay. <laughs> on the night of July the 2nd, they take up the document. And they debate it on July 3rd and July the 4th. Finally, on the 4th, they agreed to it. Thomas Jefferson never said a word. He sat there, and while they edited his document, he called it mutilation. He never said a word because he didn't like to speak in public. He, he had a high-pitched voice. He wasn't a great speaker. As President of the United States, he only made two, one public speech, first inaugural address. Everything else, he, he never made another public speech. Didn't like to talk in public. So he sat there, and they edited it, it dramatically. The key part that they edited was the key part, the meat of it, was the sins of King George. And they took out the part that he most wanted. He wanted to blame King George for the slave trade. But the, uh, many of the delegates there were slave owners, and they didn't want to blame King George for the slave trade because they didn't really want to say anything negative about slavery, and so th that was taken out. Ultimately, they reached an agreement, and they went next door to have it published with a, a publisher named John Dunlop. They printed up about 200 copies or so. They sent them to King George, George Washington, and so forth. Why is the Declaration so important? It was just a propaganda document. Well, it's important today not because of the sins of King George and not because we broke away. That's history. It's because of one sentence in that document that became the creed of our country. It wasn't recognized at the time that it was going to be that significant, but the sentence is the most famous sentence in the English language. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. happiness. Now, Thomas Jefferson lived another 50 years. He never described what he meant by happiness. We all know what that means, having your children do well in school or something like that. They don't know. He never said what it meant. But he also never said how he could write that all men are created equal when he had two slaves with him. He had a couple hundred slaves back in Monticello. Well, the only explanation, really, is that he, in effect, said all people created by God are, are equal, but he didn't really believe that men who were white and men who were black could live together. But he, he read this sentence, and it wasn't, they didn't pay much attention to it at the time, except the English, when they responded to it, said, what are you talking about, uh, you American colonies? You say all men are created equal, you have slavery. And they made fun of it. So they obviously pointed that fact out. But later, 20 years later, 30 years later, it became very, very important when people wanted to have their revolutions, they, they adopted the idea that all men are created equal, really all people are created equal. And when, Tom, when Abraham Lincoln gave his famous um, address at Gettysburg, he said, four score and seven years ago, our father brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. What he was referring to is the Declaration of Independence. And so, while today we don't have equality in our country by a long shot, we're better than we were in 1776, the creed of our country is still all men and all women are entitled to equal opportunities, equal rights, and so forth. And that's the creed of the country, and it really came from that one sentence, and that's why it's so important. Wow is right.
Thank you for having so beautifully encapsulated the essential significance of the Declaration. And David, you and I have written a short pamphlet about the relation between the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, which is the introduction to the National Constitution Center's Constitution, which you can get online. And in that pamphlet, we discuss how that sentence, which you so beautifully quoted, and I could feel the light coming through as you recited the American Creed, is based on the idea that we all have certain rights that come from God or nature, not from government. And we are born in a state of nature. And when we move from the state of nature to create a government, we alienate or surrender certain rights in order to secure greater safety of the rights we've retained. What are the unalienable rights? The quintessential one is the right of conscience, the right to worship God or not according to the dictates of conscience because Jefferson and the founders and Locke and the philosophers they relied on believe that our beliefs are the product of our reason. These are people of the enlightenment and they think that our reason cannot be coerced by force or violence. It must be allowed to reach whatever conclusions it pleases. So that's why you can't alienate the right to conscience and that's why our First Amendment rights are unalienable and that's why if government threatens those rights rather than protecting it, the final clause of that sentence David quoted is, it is the right and duty of the people to alter and abolish it. So the right of revolution is itself an unalienable right and if government threatens our rights, either we can uh, pass new laws, elect new legislators, amend the Constitution, or if the government becomes truly tyrannical, engage in revolution. So that is the legal significance of the declaration uh, which we talk about. Let us move to the Constitutional Convention. We could talk about it in general, but why don't we dig in on the personalities of the different okay. framers so that we can get a sense of who they were and what their ideas were. And we have to begin with Madison, uh, the father of the Constitution. You have been so involved in Montpelier, and I was so inspired to go out there recently and see the slave quarters at Montpelier that David has helped to restore, which remind us so powerfully that Madison and Jefferson and so many of these framers were violating the promises of equality and practice that they embraced in theory. But Madison was a tiny man. He was 5'3". He was epileptic. Tell, tell, tell us about who he was and uh, what, be, how that shaped his ideas. He was 5'4". 5'4", right. that's right. I mean, actually, he was, a, he was a giant, really. He was large. And, uh, you know, at the Constitution Center, we have statues of the framers, life-size statues, Madison 5'4", Washington Tower overing him at 6'3", and I, I'm really towering over Madison as well. So here's the story of James Madison. James Madison is born to a reasonably wealthy family in Orange County, Virginia. Uh, not that far from Charlottesville. Um, he went to Princeton because he had kind of an asthma, and he, the, the, the air in that area was not thought to be as good as the air in Princeton. I don't know why they thought that, but he went to Princeton, did well, graduated, in fact, in two years. Uh, he never actually had a job uh, in a traditional sense. He wasn't a lawyer. He wasn't a businessman. His family managed the family property and so forth, but he was a scholar, and he spent an enormous amount of time studying um, government and things like that. And then ultimately he got elected to the uh, legislature in Virginia. And ultimately, um, he was the person with Alexander Hamilton who was most responsible for the Constitutional Convention occurring. Because after we won the Revolutionary War, what happened was this. You all may remember, uh, George Washington defeats um, the, the British in Yorktown in 1781. It takes two years to get an, account, uh, an agreement. 1783, the, the, the Treaty of Paris is agreed to, all done. So the, we're, at, we're at peace, theoretically. But we had 13 colonies, and these 13 colonies really had nothing to do with each other. In fact, at the Continental Congress, when the people came from the, from the colonies to meet in Philadelphia, that, that was the first time many of them had ever actually been to Philadelphia, had ever been outside their own colony, and none of them knew each other really. In fact, more delegates who came to the Continental Congress had been to London than had ever been to Philadelphia. And so they operated very uh, independent. They had an Articles of Confederation, which is what op which operated for the country in the, in the uh, Revolutionary War period, then subsequent to that. It basically said each colony had one vote. And so you couldn't do anything done unless it was unanimous, and therefore there was no right power to tax, there was no power to have a military. And so after the 1783 treaty, the country didn't have any money, it wasn't having military force, it couldn't fight off enemies, and the British were thought to maybe attack again, and others might attack. So ultimately, uh, Madison and Hamilton cabaled together to find a way to amend the Articles of Confederation. And so they uh, convinced George Washington to participate in this, and it was supposed to be an amendment to the Articles of Confederation, but they intended it to be a new constitutional convention in effect. So they came together in Philadelphia, 
1787, in May of 1787, and there were ultimately about 55 people there. Madison came with a plan. He was well organized. He said, here's what we should do, and everything he really wanted didn't really get done. He wanted to have uh, two legislatures, but each one would be representative of the state of, 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 by population, which would help Virginia, which was a big population state. He didn't want to, to have, in effect, the, 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 the two uh, houses we have now, one with two senators and one with um, population. Um, that was his big plan. It didn't get very far. Um, he wanted to have a relatively weak president. The idea of a president being all-powerful was not really his idea. Uh, he wanted many things that never came to pass, and he is considered the father of the Constitution not because he actually wrote the Constitution. In truth, he did two things that were most important. One, he kept the record. He kept the most detailed record of what actually occurred there. He wasn't the official keeper of the record. The official keeper of the record was often drunk or not able to keep the records very good. So <laughs> Madison kept a really good record, and though he said it wouldn't be published until after his death, and it really wasn't. But it is the best indication who said what. Second, after the Constitution was actually agreed to, it had to be ratified, and it wasn't clear it could be easily ratified. The principal argument against its ratification was it didn't have a Bill of Rights. And at, during the, right before the Constitution of Convention ended, a couple people, George Mason from Virginia um, and Elbridge Derry from Massachusetts, said, wait a second, we have no Bill of Rights, and we, we create this country, and our freedoms might be taken away. And the argument was, well, no, you already have the freedoms given to you by the state legislatures, and that states are more important than the federal government, so you don't need to worry about that. And ultimately, they jammed it through. Mason refused to sign it, so did Elbridge Derry, and one other person refused to sign it because they didn't have a Bill of Rights. As they went through the ratification process, it was clear that people, the states would ratify it only if it ultimately had a um, Bill of Rights. And so in the, first continental, in the first Congress of the United States, Madison, who wanted to be a senator, but he was unable to get appointed a senator. Senators were then appointed by uh, the state legislature. He was elected. He had to run for a House seat. He ran against somebody named James Monroe. He beat him barely. And then he got in. And the first thing he did is he, he began to write a Bill of Rights. But most people in Congress said, hey, wait a second. We just set this government up. We don't we need a Bill of Rights for it. Let's wait a couple years before we see how this country's working. But he jammed it through, and ultimately they, they, they jammed through 12 that were approved by Congress. That con ultimately, 10 of them were approved by the, the state, by the state legislatures. Those 10 Bill of Rights were more or less drafted by Madison with the help of others. So he's called the father of the Constitution because he came up with the original plan uh, to have the Constitutional Convention. He really was the person who pushed it. He convinced George Washington to preside over it, and that was indispensable because if Washington hadn't presided, probably nobody else could have pushed the, the Constitutional Convention through to ratification. He also drafted the Bill of Rights. So he deserves a lot of credit. He's a very mild-mannered person. Um, he was focused mostly on, on government. He didn't marry until relatively late in those days. I think he was in his late 30s or something like that. He married Dolly Madison, who had, was a widow. Um, and um, he became uh, Secretary of State, ultimately, under Thomas Jefferson, and ultimately was also President of the United States. Interestingly, in those days, he was very close to George Washington. So when the first Congress came about, Washington, who was not a particularly literate person, uh, if he wanted a message to go to Congress, he would ask his friend, James Madison, can you write for me as George Washington the message I should send to Congress? And Madison would often write those messages. Then this response would have to come back to George Washington from the Congress. Well, Madison would write the response to Washington. <laughs> And then he would write the response back uh, again. So he was writing it back in behalf of Congress Washington, but he was a very smart person, very talented, and I, I think you don't likely see these kind of people getting involved in government anymore because somebody like that probably couldn't, have been, couldn't be elected today. He was just very cerebral, knew how to get along with other people, very mild-mannered, self-effacing. Okay. A wonderful introduction to Madison. And once again, I'm going to distill uh, from David's superb uh, account of Madison the idea that this is the emblem of reason rather than passion. You have, on the one hand, as David said, some advocates of a strong executive. Hamilton wants a president elected for life and senators elected for life, an unlikely rap star for this aristocratic devotee of presidential power. And then Jefferson is so devoted to states' rights that he wants uh, revolutions every 10 years and people to change their constitutions constantly as a populist. And Madison, mediating between them, says the government has to be based on reason rather than passion, and we have to have cooling mechanisms to slow down deliberation so America does not descend like Athens and Rome into demagogues and the mob. 
Madison believes that unless we can deliberate slowly over time, we may elect silver-tongued populists who will mislead us into violating liberty. And therefore, he creates a series of cooling mechanisms from the Senate checking the excesses of the House, the Electoral College, supposed to be a group of wise men who will choose presidents of the highest character and most scrupulous manners, the uh, uh, states' rights, checks and balances, separation of powers, and most importantly, the large size of the American Republic, which Madison thinks will make it hard for factions defined as ideological mobs to mobilize quickly and discover each other. And he stands for the necessity of people of different perspectives listening to each other, compromising, and as David said, because of Madison, the, co the convention meeting in secret between May 25th and September 17th, 1787, is able to resolve the largest conflicts between the big states and the small states, the slave states and the free states, and create the greatest document of human freedom ever written, uh, despite its flaws. Now, David, you mentioned George Washington, the, f the, the father of our country. Uh, some called him the greatest, many, most call him the greatest American, from William Howard Taft to Anton Scalia to, to all of our history lessons. We're taught that Washington was the greatest. And yet, as you said, he wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't the equal of Madison and Hamilton. Was Washington overrated? Was he a figurehead? Or he, does he deserve to be considered the most important American? Washington was born into a reasonably wealthy family. His father died when he was uh, 10 or 11 years old. And then his older brother, uh, a older brother from a different marriage that his father had, had uh, basically raised him. Then the older brother, Lawrence, died. And at 20 years old, George Washington inherited the estate now known as Mount Vernon, uh, which ironically was named after a British ad admiral because Lawrence Washington, the older brother, had been in the British military and admired uh, a British uh, admiral, uh, admiral Vernon. Um, George Washington wanted to get a commission in the British uh, military, but he never actually got one. He was a good soldier, not a great soldier. Um, he was a good landowner, uh, but he'd had some military experience, more than most of the people in the Continental Congress. So when they were looking for somebody to lead the American troops in uh, the Revolutionary War, he was one of the few people that actually had any military experience, though he'd been captured embarrassingly uh, by, uh, by, the, uh, by the opponents at one point. And, um, and, and he almost was, could have been killed, but he, he survived, he escaped. He wasn't a great tactician, but he had some experience. And he came to the Continental Congress, and they said to him at this time, well, we'd like you to lead the troops. And he said, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. But he had all his military uh, equipment with him. He had brought his uniforms up. So he did an incredible job, though. And he only had, at any given time, maybe eight to 10,000 troops. They didn't have shoes sometimes. They didn't have equipment. They didn't have armaments. How he managed to lose more battles than he won, but he ultimately won the war with a very modest um, group of people and virtually no money coming from the Continental Congress. The amazing thing that happened is this. When he won the war, and we won the war at Yorktown, he said, I'm done, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. And he turned over his sword and he uh, said goodbye and he went, it was in New York, and he went down to Mount Vernon. Napoleon heard of that and said, if that's true, he's the greatest man in the, in the face of the earth because who else would turn down power? Because in the history of the world was if you were a general, you won a war, you became the king. And, and Washington didn't do that. He turned down power. And he did it two other times in his life. Uh, when he, he, he retired to Mount Vernon and he ran his plantation and so forth, and he later was asked, as I mentioned before, to head the Constitutional Convention. He didn't want to do it. He said, I'm retired from public life, but Hamilton and Madison convinced him to do it. So he went there and he presided over the four-month Constitutional Convention. The President of the United States is the commander-in-chief because that was written knowing that George Washington would be the first president, and they knew he was a military person. That's why the President of the United States is the commander-in-chief, because it was designed for him. Had he said, I'm not going to the Constitutional Convention, I doubt if there would have been one. Had he said, I'll never be president, I doubt that the country would have had the kind of government we've had or be where we are today. So he turned down power um, uh, after the Constitutional Convention. He went back and said, I'm done. I don't want anything else. I've done what I'm going to do. He was then elected the first president. He didn't really want to serve. He served eight years. He, he could have served the rest of his life. He could have been a king. He could have turned it over to somebody else in his family, but he didn't do that. Uh, interestingly, uh, I've told some of you this before, uh, just how he died. He was born in 1732. He died in 1799. We have the Washington Monument built initially in 1832, uh, at the beginning of his 100th birthday. He, we didn't have a monument originally after he was born because there was 
political back and forth between his party, the Federalist Party, and the Republican Party, what you might call the Democratic Party, and they didn't want to honor Washington because it was seen it would be elevating the Federalist Party. So nothing was done when he died, really, in a, in a big monument. Ultimately, the monument was built starting in 1832, but it didn't finish a typical Washington project of 1888. It took 50 years to get it done. And they ran out of money and so forth. But when Washington died, it was very interesting. He said two things upon his death, and he died this way. He was riding out to see his troop, to see his plantation and so forth, and he came back and he was dripping wet because it was raining. And Washington in those days was a very hospitable person, and he and his wife always entertained people that came, and it was considered a great uh, uh, thing to do to pay homage to the Washingtons, to stop by, and even if you didn't know them, stop and kind of stay, for, like to have dinner or lunch. They were always entertaining people, any of them they didn't know. He came back one time, he's dripping wet, and what happens, he has somebody there he doesn't know, and he didn't want to go upstairs and change out of the dripping wet clothing, so he sits there and wasn't smart to do. He gets up, catches the cold at night. Next day, he goes out in the rain again, gets a worse cold, comes back, and in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., he says to his wife, I can't breathe. They, they bring the doctors over. The doctors say the only solution is to cut your veins and let the bad spirits out, which usually doesn't work. And so <laughs> he died, and in his will, when they read it, he said two, two interesting things. One, don't bury me for two days. Why? Because he was afraid of being buried alive. Because very often the doctors were so bad, they put people in coffins who were still alive. And so that's why they put the bells in coffins, and then you're supposed to ring the bell if you were still alive. That's where the phrase dead ringer comes from. And, <laughs> and, and secondly, he said in his will, he was the only founding father, the only founding father who agreed to free his slaves upon his death, though he had a proviso. He said, my slaves are to be freed upon the death of my wife. Now, how would you like to be Martha Washington sitting around there with all the slaves knowing? So, she freed him pretty quickly. Washington was a very dignified man. He was not a brilliant scholar. He didn't really go to, he didn't go to college. He was self-educated. Um, he was always sensitive to the fact he wasn't educated. Uh, he was not illiterate, but he had many of the, uh, he was literate, but he, he, Alexander Hamilton often wrote many of his speeches. Um, and, and Madison wrote many of his things. So he, he, he was smart, but not in a, in a literary sense uh, or an intellectual sense. He was very dignified. He didn't want anybody ever touching him. He, he was a person who um, wanted to be standoffish a bit. So he wasn't the kind of person who went out drinking beer with Madison and, and, and Hamilton and so forth. He stood, stood back from them, but he was respected by everybody. And upon his funeral, uh, Richard Henry Lee famously said, George Washington, First, uh, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. So I think he does deserve uh, the credit he got, in large part because he made the presidency a, an elected position and not a, a hereditary position. He could have had a stepson perhaps taken over from him, or he could have appointed his successor. He chose not to do that. That's exactly right. That perfectly encapsulates Washington's accomplishment. First in war at Valley Forge, where John Marshall serves under him as a young soldier. Marshall says, thanks to Washington, I came to see the United States as my country and Congress as my government. So he creates the idea of a union. And then stepping down, uh, of course, he doesn't have children. It's hugely significant that he can't be a king to pass on to his successors. But like Cincinnatus, the fact that he relinquishes the office makes the presidency a constrained constitutional office rather than an act of tyranny. And then at the convention, it's crucial that he showed up. It wasn't clear that this group of confederated states was going to be able to come up with an alternative. And remember that the Constitution is illegal according to the ratification rules under the Articles of Confederation. The Confederation says that any changes have to be unanimous. But the convention votes to ratify the new Constitution on a two-thirds vote. And it was the fact that Washington, the largest and most prestigious and trusted person in the country, was there to dignify the proceedings that gave the, the Constitution the authority to speak in the name of we the people and created the Constitution. Why did he have no children? Well, many people, the founding fathers all had children. He was the only one without any children. No one knows for certain, but there are a couple of theories. Um, one is that he took his older brother to Barbados once, the only time George Washington ever left the country, and uh, his brother um, had, had tuberculosis, and it was thought if he went down there, it was good for it. Uh, George Washington contracted smallpox then. Smallpox is not unlike mumps, and it can sterilize a man. And there is one theory that he was basically sterile, um, and that's why when you see George Washington slept here all the time, it wasn't, he, he didn't have to worry about having children because he, he wasn't really likely to be able to produce children. But the other theory was he wrote letters occasionally saying, 
my wife will not be able to produce an heir for me. So like many men, he kind of blamed it on his wife, I guess. But, um, but it's not clear uh, what the reason was, but it was clear that he knew he couldn't have children. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Psychedelic drugs, like psilocybin, are being used to treat people who suffer from depression, anxiety, obsession, and trauma. Author Michael Pollan began writing about this kind of therapy after visiting terminal cancer patients who were using drugs to overcome a fear of dying. It was my conversations with these people who were astonishing and hearing their stories that convinced me that I, as someone who was almost psychedelically naive, I had had very little experience myself, that I became intensely curious. In our episode, The New Science of Psychedelics, Pollan opens up about how his research into these drugs became personal. Find the show in your podcast player, and there's a link in our show notes. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Jeff Rosen. John Adams, Washington's vice president, uh, famous for wanting the presidency to be called His Excellency or His High uh, Majesty or something like that. And yet there's no monument in Washington to Adams. Uh, What was his constitutional significance and what sort of a man was he? John Adams is interesting. Uh, Most people have forgotten about him until David McCullough wrote this Pulitzer Prize winning book on John Adams. And everybody said, wow, we didn't know he was so great. John Adams was, uh, was a, a person from modest means. His father was a, a, a minister. He became a lawyer. He got involved in politics in Massachusetts and was pretty anti-British. Uh, and so he got involved with the Continental Congress. And he was the real intellectual leader of the Continental Congress, urging that we should uh, pull away from, from Britain. It was he more than anybody else that led that effort. Uh, he ultimately was sent over during the war to be a minister. And uh, he was a minister, in fact, to England and to France and to the Netherlands. Uh, but he had an irascible personality. He was short, um, overweight, bald, and the truth is he only had one tooth. Um, George Washington had one tooth, but he had some dentures. But uh, Adams' uh, dentistry wasn't as good as Washington, so he didn't really, that's why you'll never see any smiling with his teeth. He didn't really have any teeth. But he was a very smart man, very dedicated person. He wrote the Constitution of of Massachusetts, Massachusetts, which is still largely in, in effect. So he was a very, very smart person, but he knew it, and he was alienated people, very irascible. Um, he thought that uh, he should be the vice president of the United States uh, under Washington, and he was elected. He thought he should be president after Washington stepped down, and there was a lot of opposition. Jefferson ran against him. Uh, ultimately, Adams won narrowly, but Adams was the first person to not be reelected. Adams ran for president a second time and was defeated. Um, by Jefferson, and then Adams retired, and he lived to be in his 90s, and interestingly, um, he did live to see his son be president of the United States, but unlike George Herbert Walker Bush, he never actually physically saw his son once his son was president, because he was up in Massachusetts and never actually saw his son as president, but he was not a likable person, and we don't have a monument to him in Washington, because he didn't really have a, a core of support uh, of people that just idolized him. Absolutely right. Uh, But as you say, he was a deep constitutional thinker. And what we all need to remember about Adams is he was the great source for why we have three branches of government. So he's the greatest scholar of the Greece uh, uh, the, the Greek example. And he reads about Athens, and he reads Aristotle, and then he reads Montesquieu. And both Aristotle and Montesquieu insist that you have to have uh, three types of governments. There can be uh, oligarchies, uh, democracies or monarchies, and they can degenerate in their tyrannical form into tyranny, uh, demagogues and the mob, and uh, aristocracy degenerates into oligarchy. So that's why he wants to have all three branches represented in the U.S. Constitution, and that's why we have a Senate representing the aristocratic elements, the House representing the democracy, and the President representing the monarchical element. And all of that is reflected in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which Adams helped to draft, and which contains the perfect forerunner of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, because Adams was so moved by the battle over the writs of assistance and general warrants that sparked the American Revolution 
And when James Otis denounced the writs of assistance which King George used to search for the people who violated the Boston Tea Taxes, Adams said at that moment the child revolution was born. And in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, you can find a version of a prohibition on searches and seizures that precisely anticipates the US Fourth Amendment. I think we have one more framer to discuss, and that is Adams's arch rival, but also lifelong friend, Thomas Jefferson, both Adams and Jefferson, not at the Constitutional Convention, Adams in London, Jefferson in Paris. Uh, Jefferson is much discussed now. He owned uh, slaves. Danielle Allen gave a riveting discussion of Thomas Jefferson the other day. Uh, what should we think in light of uh, Jefferson and his relationship with Sally Hemings about whether or not this great patriot violated the principles of equality or not? Thomas Jefferson, after he wrote the Declaration of Independence, went back to Virginia, ultimately was elected governor, but was considered a very unsuccessful governor. In fact, he was um, in, in, uh, they had a, an investigation of whether he should be um, you know, penalized for what he had done because he, when the British were coming forward, he kind of escaped and really didn't stay by and, and defend uh, the, the state very well. But he later um, became a Secretary of State under George Washington and then uh, uh, Vice President under John Adams and then President. And for the eight years he served as President, he, he uh, did many good things, but the most important was he bought the Louisiana Purchase for $15 million, which more than doubled the size of the country. Interestingly, there was no power in the Constitution that said that you, sh you, should be a you, you have the authority to buy new land, and he was a, a person who didn't believe in uh, excessive executive power, but he overlooked that, and ultimately he was convinced that he had the power to do it, and Madison, his Secretary of State, convinced him to do it. That was his greatest contribution as president. Um, he is well regarded for the, being the Renaissance man of his time. He was a great intellect, great writer, an architect, agronomist, uh, historian, uh, every skill that you could possibly want in a human being in terms of intellectual capabilities he had. And he built the famous Monticello, which was his pride and joy. On the Sally Hemings thing, this is very interesting. Thomas Jefferson, when he was running for president, somebody to whom he hadn't paid a debt, supposedly, James Callender, said, we all know that Thomas Jefferson is having an affair with a woman at, uh, at, uh, who's a slave at, uh, at, Tom, at um, Monticello. And Thomas Jefferson never denied it. He never admitted it. He just said it was scurrilous. Uh, the truth of it, is, it appears to be this. Thomas Jefferson's, died, uh, Thomas Jefferson's wife died when he was 39 years old. On her deathbed, she said, I had a stepmother. I don't want our two daughters to have a stepmother. Promise me you'll never marry again. So what's he supposed to say? He says, okay, I want to marry again. So he was a, a sensuous person, and he had a number of girlfriends, and he was a romantic, but he never did marry again. When he was, in effect, our ambassador to France, he had one of his daughters with him. Another daughter was back. He had three living daughters at that point. One of them died while he was in France. The other younger one was brought over. I think she was about nine years old. And she really barely knew Thomas Jefferson because he'd been away for years. She didn't want to go visit him in Paris. They had to get somebody to bring her over. They, brought a, they had a 14-year-old slave from Monticello bring her over. Thomas Jefferson met the slave. Her slave was Sally Hemings. And it appears that he began in a relationship with her, impregnated her, and said to her, if you come back to the United States, I will free our children when they're 21. If you stay here, of course, you're free because there's no slavery in France. She, depending on your point of view, she was uh, raped by him. She fell in love with him. She was taken advantage of him. That nobody knows. There are no pictures of her. Uh, there, she's never written anything. Uh, she may not have been literate. Uh, we only know about her, really, from her son who wrote a book at one point recounting a lot of this. But then she did decide to come back. And it appears that uh, Thomas Jefferson had uh, six children with her. And these children, um, uh, four of them lived to adulthood. And uh, the one that was from France that actually did not live to adulthood. Uh, and, and Thomas Jefferson kept his promise. He did free them. And two of them were so white-looking that they lived as whites in Ohio uh, for the rest of their lives. Why did he fall in love with, with uh, Sally Hemings, and what was the relationship? That's too complicated to get in here, but here's why I think he may have fallen in love with her. Um, his, his wife, Martha, the father of Martha was a man named John Wares, W-A-Y-L-E-S. That was uh, his father-in-law. John Wares was a slave owner. He impregnated Betty Hemings. The result of that impregnation was Sally Hemings. So when Thomas Jefferson saw a 14-year-old Sally Hemings, who was three-quarters white, 
he was seeing his wife as a 14-year-old, at least that's one theory, and he fell in love with her or he took advantage of her depending on your point of view, but they seemed to have a relationship until he died. And the, the Monticello people have now reopened uh, or what they th say is where she lived. And the way it kind of worked, it really is Thomas Jefferson had a, had a, a Monticello had a, uh, a library, um, a study, and his bedroom all walled off from the rest of Monticello, and nobody was ever allowed to go into that part of uh, the house. And there was a backdoor staircase that somebody could come up with, and I guess Sally Hemings did. He never actually admitted it again. He never denied it. Uh, now there's DNA evidence that appears that it's, it's true. So this may lower your view of, of him, or it, it may not, but whatever the case, he was a person who wrote the Declaration of Independence, he was a person who created the University of Virginia, he was a great intellectual leader, and he, I think, is the person who's most responsible for the wording of our, our creed, of, that all men are created equal. But he, he has some character flaws, and he, he was a, a person who had more than 200 slaves uh, li living and working in Monticello, and it was because of those slaves that he was able to live this very wealthy lifestyle that he had. That is a powerful account of Jefferson's flaws as a man and also his significance in the Declaration. And I guess we should also just note that he is the founder of the Democratic Republican Party, along with James Madison, in opposition to Hamilton and Adams's Federalist Party. And all of American history, as the historian Arthur Schlesinger has said, can be seen as a battle between Jefferson and Hamilton, the Democrats and the Federalists, between the states' rights represented by Jefferson and the national power of Hamilton, between the populism of Jefferson, who believed in direct democracy and thought that government should change every few years, and the aristocratic tendencies of uh, Hamilton and the Federalists. We're seeing that battle played out today, but it's crucially important to understand the political significance of these men, and finally, to note that they didn't anticipate the rise of political parties. Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson thought of parties as factions that would lead ideological enthusiasts to oppress each other. It, it, ironically, in one of the great ironies of American history, Madison and Jefferson themselves created the first political party, but the parties came over time to serve as a substitute for the cooling mechanisms that they had put in place and by aggregating people of different interests in geographic areas around common constitutional ideas, states' rights versus national power, the party served at least until very recently as amalgamating forces. Uh, so we've induced everybody to come by telling you we were going to tell you what the founding fathers would think of today. So let me... <laughs> And, and let There's me a lot of history to, to, to Let address. me address that, if I can. Nobody could really know for sure. Um, they would be shocked that the Constitution is still in effect. Thomas Jefferson, as you alluded to, when he, he was not at the Constitutional Convention, he was in France at the time, but he wrote to Madison saying, I think we should not have this Constitution because we should have a new Constitution every 20 years and not have uh, a perpetual one. They would be shocked that more than 200 plus years later, it's still in effect. And they would be shocked that the United States has become the biggest economic power in the world, the biggest military, political power in the world. I don't think they anticipated that. They would be not surprised that some of the amendments occurred to the Constitution. They all knew that slavery couldn't survive forever. They just didn't want to address it. They figured eventually it would, it would fade away or something would happen. So that, that we had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments abolishing slavery and making African Americans able to be citizens and have the right to vote. That wouldn't shock them. They might have been more shocked with the amendment that gave women the right to vote. Um, in those days, to be honest, women were not even considered even close to being uh, able to be involved in government or politics. Abigail Adams famously wrote a letter to John Adams saying, when you're coming up with all these things in, down the Continental Congress, don't forget the women. Well, he never responded to that. They did forget the women. So, but I think they would be surprised by that. I think they would be surprised that we have direct election of the United States Senate because that's not what they in favor. They didn't think direct election was such a good thing. They would probably be surprised that the Electoral College still exists, um, as we all know, and uh, they would probably be surprised by that, but they would also be surprised that, that the Electoral College really is a figment now. It really doesn't exist in quite the way they anticipated. I think they would be surprised that 21-year-olds uh, or 18-year-olds now have the right to vote. Uh, they wouldn't have thought that would probably be appropriate. Um, I think they would be most surprised, though, that money has become such an important part of politics. It was not something that was that uh, in their purview in those days. And I think they would be most surprised with the political skirmishing that is lacking in civility. They had political fights all the time, but they were respectful of each other. They didn't um, you know, really get into these kind of fights that you have today where people from one side won't talk to the other side. 
uh, in the Constitutional Convention, they all socialized, even though they had different agreements and different points of view. So I think they would be upset with the lack of, of civility that we often see in our government, but I think they'd be most surprised that their handiwork survived this long because nobody would have thought 200 plus years ago that something they came up with that long ago uh, would actually survive. So I think they'd be pleased where, where the country is, relatively speaking. They would probably want some changes, but they would probably be amazed that what they came up with is survived that long. And any of you think about anything you've created, how many of you think that what you might have created will be around 200 plus years? It's, it's a daunting thing when you think about it, and no constitution has survived this long. Those are excellent observations. Everything David said uh, resonates with me. He identified the rise of direct democracy, which the founders could never have anticipated and which they feared, designing the entire system as a representative republic rather than a direct democracy in order to slow down deliberation and to cool passions. And David identified the rise of new instruments of direct democracy, like the direct election of senators in the 17th Amendment, and like the initiative and referendum that would have distressed them. And then he identified this great polarization, which has been such a theme of this Ideas Festival, and which we all know has literally rent this country apart, dividing us into red and blue America, into filter bubbles and echo chambers, so that we seem unable to have the kind of civil dialogue and respectful listening to different points of view and compromise that was the essence of the Madisonian system. The whole system is built on the idea that people can come respectfully together, representatives of the people, so that populist passions can dissipate and that reason can prevail. And of course, the greatest thing they obviously couldn't have anticipated, since it didn't exist, but which has most threatened their vision is the rise of social media, which has both increased polarization creating new filter bubbles and echo chambers so all of us can ensure that we never listen to views that we disagree with, and also speeded up deliberation. The fact that decisions are made at warp speed with Brexit votes and Twitter polls is the antithesis of the slow reason deliberation that the founders had in mind. Despite all that, I think David is absolutely right to be optimistic in the end that this this is important, friends. We all know that these are anxious times, and we're wondering, will the Constitution survive? Will we continue to thrive as a representative republic? And the fact that this great document of human freedom continues to create checks and balances, separation of powers, division of power between the federal and state government, ensures that the president is not a king, that he can be checked by independent courts, that Congress can check the president as well. And that is why I, like David, am optimistic that this great document, which is the one thing we share as Americans in this time of polarization, will continue to help us thrive so, in the future. The original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the original copy of the Bill of Rights, the original copy of the Constitution are in the National Archives. For those who haven't been there, the National Archives is an interesting organization. When our country was first started, each department of government kept its own documents. Well, they lost them, they sometimes had fires, it wasn't a very good idea to keep them by each department. So in the 1820 or so, it was decided that, recommended that we have a central national archive to keep all the documents in one place. Uh, it took about 100 years for that to actually happen. It didn't actually get in place until about 1935. In Washington, D.C., there's a national archives where the bulk of these historic documents are held. They're faded, but they're still there, and, and um, Today, I'd say, if you want to learn a lot about the Constitution, though, the U.S. Constitution Center that Jeff runs is something that does a lot to educate people about the Constitution. Uh, you might describe what it does very briefly. We're almost out of time. We're practically out of time. But I would just say that I am convinced that most Americans, uh, if they had to take a citizenship test that immigrants have to take uh, to be a citizen, could not pass this test because we know so little about the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and other uh, basic things about our government, um, and, and I'm disappointed about that. But tell us what the Constitution Center does in the remaining couple seconds we have. Thank you for asking. Thank you for being on the board of the Constitution Center and for loaning us these founding documents. Thanks to David, you can come in Philadelphia to this amazing temple of the Constitution, this beautiful IMP building on Independence Mall right across from Independence Hall and see the rarest original copies of the Declaration of Independence, one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights. James Wilson's original drafts of the Constitution, the first time that anyone ever put pen to paper and the first words of the original Constitution were resolved there shall be a legislative, executive, and judicial branch. Separation of powers was the main idea, and that was followed by the we the people. 
So it's an amazing museum of the Constitution, and you have to visit it. But it's also America's only nonpartisan educational center created by the US Congress to bring together liberals and conservatives to educate Americans on every media platform. So some of you heard me plug the other day this incredible interactive Constitution. David and my uh, discussion of the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights is on it, along with the top liberal and conservative scholars in America writing about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. So download the app, not now until af you know, after the show, uh, the Interactive Constitution. Click on the First Amendment, and you'll see uh, the top liberal and conservative scholars describing what they agree and disagree about all of the five freedoms of the First Amendment, and you can do that for all of the Constitution. Just uh, an hour ago, over in Koch tent, David Coleman from the College Board announced a really thrilling new initiative. The College Board and the National Constitution Center are going to create a two-week curriculum about what every American should know about the five freedoms of the First Amendment that will be required of all kids who take AP classes across America. Right. So that is millions of kids will be able to click on the First Amendment and learn the essence of the five freedoms. And now what I need you to do, and, and David and I, as you know, are evangelists for constitutional education, we have to get this great tool to kids across America, to disadvantaged kids, to veterans, to adult learners. It is urgently important in these polarized times that all of us understand the Constitution, and we have to do so by listening to different points of view, respectfully agreeing and disagreeing, and ultimately educating ourselves about this great document of human freedom. So thank you so much. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks a lot. David Rubenstein is a former lawyer and domestic policy advisor to President Carter. He's co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest private equity firms. He spoke with Jeff Rosen, who's president and CEO of the nonprofit National Constitution Center. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.